to start by saying, I love this church family. And I say that for a lot of reasons, but the last few days, you guys, it's been incredible to be a part of what you have done. Um, From people coming several days ago to set up tables and decorate the tables, to put out flowers, uh, and then, then all day yesterday, I think from about 8.30 until, uh, frankly, 7.30 or 6.30 that night, people were around setting up, cooking, washing dishes, cleaning up tables, vacuuming. It was amazing. And so, you know, 17, almost 17 years later of being here, it is a privilege to be a part of this group and to see how you guys love each other and treat each other. And yesterday was just one example of many. I've heard several people say, like church people, they know what church world is. I've never seen a church do that kind of thing for a family. And that's a testimony to me. So, guys, well done. Thank you. Keep up the good work. And in the theme of what we've been talking about for about a month and a half, that's what makes me happy, is being able to serve alongside you guys. So, I would say give yourself a hand if that's sort of self-serving, but you should anyway, because it was it was awesome. Um, by the way, I don't know, Denise put that on Facebook, not those exact words, and so I told her last night, really, you put that? I was going to start my sermon out, and everybody thinks I stole it from you. So for the record, I didn't. It just means there was something you said across the board. So anyway, um, we've been talking, for, as I just said, for a long while about this idea of happiness. How can you have happiness? How can you find joy and contentment in life? And we've looked at a lot of different ideas, and we're going to try to kind of wrap some things up today. And and I think it'll bring together some of the strains we've been looking at over the last four, five, six weeks. I don't even know how long we've been, been looking at this. But one of the things that I want to say today is, is in many ways not what you would expect and exactly what you would expect. It's not what you would expect because it doesn't seem like logically A plus B would equal C. But it's exactly what you would expect because it's the kind of thing you hear a lot of times in church. So how do you reconcile that kind of tension? Is it exactly what you should expect? And so you should kind of dismiss it because, let's be honest, sometimes we hear stuff in church and go, oh, yeah, that's that. Or should you go, okay, that doesn't make sense, so it must be true. Have you, you know how often Jesus turns the economy of what we think about upside down? And this is one of those places. We have this way of thinking that this is how life works, and then Jesus steps in and says something. And we're like, wait a minute, that's sort of backwards. Like he would say something like, The first will be last, and the last will be first. Wait a minute, Jesus. I've been in line. When I was in elementary school, I always wanted to be the line leader. When I was in line leader, I was line leader. I wasn't at the end. I was first. I was first. The first shall be first. Amen. Not the first shall be, but he says stuff like that. And this is the kind of thing that we're going to see here today. And, And what it boils down to is this. If you make life all about you, you will never be happy. A lot of people try to make life about them. What can they pursue? What can they consume? How can they act? What can they do? What are the experiences they can accumulate? What's the wealth that they can accumulate so they can have the right thing? In fact, we look at things and we kind of say, well, if only I had fill in the blank. What are some of the things? If only, well, if only I had that guy's income, Oh, I would definitely be happy. Or if only I had that family.
this home. Man, it's so crowded in there. Look how big that is. If only I had that couple's kids. That's maybe going too far. If only my husband looked like him. still win, Paul. Last night, I don't know how it came up, Paul and Marie and Denise and I were finishing up some things and movie stars came up and one of them was mentioned and one of the ladies said, oh, he is good looking. And I said, wait a minute. Now, Paul, who do you think is good looking? Let's have fun. He said, my wife. (laughs) It's like, way to leave me hanging, Paul. Way to just leave me hanging. But it was Go home a winner, I think is what he said. So, you know, we, we look at things and, and we say, oh, if only I had this. And, we, and, and, you know, really, if we if we could, we'd sort of grab a little bit of this person's life and grab a little bit of that person's life and grab a little bit of that person's life. You know, if I only had hair, like. You know, I don't have to say like. I could just say if I only had hair. To stop there. Anything's an improvement over nothing. We put that together, and we probably have those pieces of a life that if we could make it ideal, that's what we'd pick. We'd put together this composite being. Not many of us would say, oh, if I could be them. We kind of want to pick and choose. And, and, you know, there's a word for doing that. There's a person, a name, that is the epitome of picking a little bit of this and picking a little bit of that. You know who it is? Frankenstein. Isn't that what Frankenstein was? Okay, young Frankenstein, particularly. Um, Abby Norman, right? One of my family people here. I don't know if they were around during that. Did nobody see that movie? Abby. Abby Norman? Moving on, yes. (laughs) But, you know, that's the idea. And we would do that in our life. We would kind of pick and choose how we feel. And it, it will not work because all of that is somehow making it about you. And the biggest irony of all is some of the people that you say, oh, if I could have that person's this, are looking at you and saying, oh, really, I want what they have. I wish if I could have their this. So it's just odd. And and, and the other reality is when we look at some people that are maybe happier than us, seem to have more fulfillment and contentment in life, they are the kind of people that we wouldn't say, I want their. Because maybe they're not as wealthy or don't make as much money as you. Or maybe they don't drive as nice a car. They don't have all the, the trappings that you're looking for that you would think, oh, if I just had that, I would be happy. And so when we pursue that sort of thing, when we think if I just keep consuming, if I just find the stuff that I want, if I make life all about me, finally I'll be happy. You will come to a dead end every time. It will lead not to fulfillment, not to happiness, but to quite the opposite. So in fact, here's the point. Here's the thing that doesn't make sense on the one hand, but makes perfect sense because of where you are. If you want to be happy, the number one way to be happy is to serve others. Now, I told you it makes sense because you're in church, and the church is always looking for people to do something, aren't we? Things like we need volunteers in the nursery, we need volunteers here. And you say, of course the preacher would say, it's going to make you happy to serve others. 
But if you don't want to take my word for it, let's talk studies. You can go and use that wonderful search engine of choice, probably Google or Bing or Yahoo or one of those, and, and just Google the link between happiness and volunteering or happiness and service. And you will find study after study after study shows there is a verifiable, a demonstrative, a demonstrable link between those who are happiest and those who serve. In fact, the careers that are listed as the ones that have the greatest fulfillment, the top three of the top four categories are careers that care for others, teach others, and protect others. You can figure out what those kind of careers would be. We have a lot of people in this room that are in one of those areas of their career path. And those career paths that do that, it's not about how much money they make. As long as they have enough to kind of have the basics of life, food, clothing, and shelter, the more money they make, they don't get happier. It's just the fact that in those career pursuits of serving and and protecting or serving and teaching or serving and caring for others, people are naturally the most fulfilled and the happiest because they're all about not themselves, but giving themselves away. The University of Chicago did that study. There was a study in um, the United Kingdom where actually they studied studies. Apparently you can do that. You don't have to do a study. You just find a bunch of studies that you can study. And they pulled together about 30 or 40 different studies over a couple of decades about happiness and volunteerism, happiness and the link. They said, what is the link? And they found that if you regularly volunteer, if you regularly find a place to, to serve others, not like once in a while, but find it on a regular outlet, that in fact the health benefits are you are less depressed, less instance of heart disease, and less stress. Even teenagers that don't want to help, that do it with a bad attitude, even they have less instance of drug abuse and teen pregnancy. Pretty interesting, isn't it? I find it fascinating. It's like, there's the thing. And, and on the other hand, those are the negatives. Like, you don't have those things. But people that volunteer regularly, on the positive side, they have a higher health es- self-esteem. They live longer. Their physical health and their quality of life is higher. Isn't that interesting? Those are secular studies. That's not a preacher doing preacher stuff. That's just secular studies. In fact, there's one article that, that talks about um, strategies to deal with 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 cancer particularly, and one of them, in addition to some of the health benefits, one of them is volunteering and mentoring, according to this study, boosted your immune system. Isn't that remarkable? Quite fascinating, you would say. And so in those things, what we find out is one of the best things you can do for yourself is not be so focused on yourself. Now, if the preacher saying it doesn't work, And if, you know, the secular studies don't work, how about this? Jesus said, are we all good? (laughs) Okay. You figured I'd get there eventually, right? I actually just went through and looked at links and scriptures about serving others. And there are a bunch of them. Surprise, surprise. I could have spent pages, but I picked out a few just to throw out. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Jesus says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It makes sense. That's what he said. Son of man, Jesus himself, son of God, king of kings, lord of lords, 
the second person of the Trinity, the word that became flesh, that had every right to step on this earth and demand anything from his creation, said, I didn't come so that you could serve me. I came to serve you and to lay down my life as a ransom. And then he would say to his disciples some of the same, some of the same things, one that we kind of talked about in, in passing. Mark 9.35 says this, If anyone wants to be first, he should be the servant of all. The way to the top is to the bottom. And then he modeled that, even in his life, one of the most famous episodes that we might think in that regard is tied to uh, the first observance of what we call the Lord's Supper. When before, as he gathered with his disciples for the Passover before the meal, it was Jesus himself who took off his outer cloak, grabbed the basin, and did that lowest of all tasks, we might think, washed his disciples' feet. He demonstrated, he didn't just say it, but he lived it out in practical ways. We could go on, in fact, I will. Jesus says, Matthew 23, 11, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. So we've got this sort of upside down thing in the kingdom of God where, where Jesus wants us to understand one of the best things we can do is to give ourselves away, to pour ourselves out. That somehow the best thing you can do for yourself is to not do so much for yourself. And then there's another whole category of things we could look at in the New Testament. They're called the one another's. Now, depending on how you count, there's various lists. But if you count, I, I did the search I did came up to almost 60. Some of them were the same. Like, love one another. Do you know how many times love one another shows up? It makes me think we ought to love one another. It takes me a while to get it, but there it is. In fact, sometimes in two or three verses in a row, Jesus will say it three or four times, you know, just repeating it. Just like, don't miss this one love one another. But he would say to forgive one another. That's kind of important. If you have ever had a friction in a relationship, forgiveness does a lot to, to overcome that. It says bear one another's burdens. It says to be patient with one another. To serve one another. We've kind of looked at that. And all of these ideas in the, the New Testament where we're supposed to one another, one another. The idea being, as God's people... It's not about us. It's not about elevating ourselves. It's not about showing our importance. It's not about somehow proving to the world that we're the best. No, rather it's about how we might give of ourselves, empty ourselves, so that someone else might experience what we know. It is not the logical way. It is sort of counterintuitive to how we think of things, but it is the way that Jesus said life works best. The way that he, in fact, himself demonstrated that life works best. Now, now we can look at this also from a negative point of view. And, and we're going to do that for just a few minutes. We talked a few weeks ago about sin. We talked a lot about sin for a couple of weeks in, in uh, the process of going through this series. And one of the things we said is that sin separates us. It, it causes a gap, certainly between us and God. When we disobey God, when we sin against God, somehow there's a, a, a gap between us. Remember, I brought my whiteboard and drew pictures that you couldn't see because I realized the next day on Monday I walked to the back of the room. I'm like, I can't see a thing that's on that whiteboard. But nonetheless, that happened. But sin separates us from God. It separates us from each other. When you sin against somebody, when you do something wrong to somebody, it causes a separation in your relationship. There, there's a 
there's a problem there. There's, there's distance there. And what, what sin ultimately does as we indulge in it is not only separates us from others, but it separates us further and further away till we're sort of in our own self-centered worlds, pursuing what we want and after all that, that we think. You know, it's like we, I, we've isolated ourselves because all of our actions have been about us, and sin just keeps telling us, hey, listen, you just need a little bit more. You just need to do this a little bit more. You just need to indulge this a little bit more, and you'll just be happier. We keep doing it and doing it, and suddenly the, the circle of our life gets smaller and smaller and more and more separate and more and more isolated and probably more and more miserable. In fact, Paul talks about the kinds of things that happen in that. It's in Galatians chapter 5. These verses aren't going to show up on the screen. I got these in the, in the pew before the service. But in Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, Hey, listen, in verse, where are we going to start? Verse 19. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. The sinful acts. We talked about kind of our sin nature, our nationality. You're from the nation of sin. It's kind of how you're born. And because of that, that's just got some negative things. And, and Paul says, the acts of the sinful nature, I don't have to convince you these are wrong. I don't have to convince you these are sim- sinful. They're obvious. And then he lists some just to be clear. Just to be clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery. He goes on and says, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live this way will not inherit the kingdom of God. So he says, these sinful things that isolate you and separate you from others are obvious. You know the list. It's a pretty, pretty nasty list, isn't it? Not, not something that we want to spend a lot of time on. Um, you know, I, I won't bore you with let's define all these in the Greek and see what they actually mean, because I think you know. They're pretty clear. Bad things. And most of those things, one of the reasons they separate and isolate us is because when we pursue those obvious acts of the sinful nature, we begin to use other people, exploit other people, thinking somehow we're going to get pleasure out of it. And we find out in doing that, we don't, in using them, we don't get pleasure. We actually just isolate ourselves more and more. And as we talked about that wonderful law of diminishing returns, the more and more we pursue that thing that we think will make us happy, that, that idea of pleasure, the more we go after it, the hungrier we are for it. You ever notice that? Like we need a little bit more so that we get the same thrill of the same high as we did before. The same amount isn't enough. We build up like a tolerance to that. We have to go further and further. And most of our appetites function like that. They're never satisfied, and they always drive us to do more. And if we were to go back over that list, we would see all of those would fit in that kind of category. That when we followed that road, thinking that somehow those things, the acts of the sinful nature, are, are, are obvious, we'll get happy, we'll end up we're just going to get more and more frustrated, more and more isolated, more and more empty, most likely. And so Paul says in that list, in effect, warns us against that. Don't go there. Don't do that. The sinful nature, and by the way, do you have to teach a two-year-old how to sin? You know, the, the hard thing about this is, is the, the acts of the sinful nature, they come naturally. But they're not what you were designed to be. When God cr- 
crafted you. And when God thought of humanity in the beginning, his idea wasn't we would be people that pursue with all of our lives these things. But as sin entered the picture, and as the brokenness of the world continues, it seems like just continues to ramp up, these are the things that mankind has naturally pursued. It wasn't God's design for you. In fact, if you want to see God's design, we need to go back to Jesus, because Jesus is God in the flesh, God incarnate. And he lived out those years on earth, the perfect picture of the kind of life God designed for us. And we've already seen Jesus wasn't given to these things. In fact, he was given to the opposite. He was given to serving others, to giving himself away. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. Well, Paul uses that list first, but he doesn't stop there. Aren't you glad? He goes on in the next verse, uses a wonderful word, the word, but. There's a change coming. Something else is possible. But the fruit of the Spirit is, and then he makes another list, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So he kind of sets up this contrast in the midst of this argument in Galatians chapter 5. The acts of the sinful nature, obvious things that we understand because part of us naturally pursues them, and the fruit of the Spirit, also obvious as opposites of those. But another thing that's obvious about these is they're good. Think about that list. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. None of those words make you happy, right? Are you happy when you're in love? I have to say it that way. Not really. Does it make you happy when someone's patient with you? Has anybody ever had that happen? When there is kindness, he quotes says, "Against such thing there is no law." Now, in mind is the law of God. Obviously, you, when when the Spirit of God fills you and these characteristics manifest themselves in your life, you're not breaking God's law. But could you imagine if? Okay, let's go to Miami and talk about traffic. That's the acts of the sinful nature that are obvious, right? Could you imagine? This afternoon, you decided to go to the big city. And everybody that was driving between here and there lived by these rules. Could you, what would that be like? Heaven? Would you be happy? See, I think we need police officers. Because they have to go to all the intersections and say, one of you guys have got to go first. Because you're all just saying, no, you go first. No, you go first. And you're arguing over who gets to go first. I was in the grocery store this week, and somebody behind me had fewer items. And I said, oh, no, you can go ahead. Let me have more. They said, no, no, you go ahead. I'm like, okay, is it going to be like this? Maybe they've been to church, and they've heard me say this, and they're testing me. So I'm like, no, no, you go first, really. And I looked at the camera. I said, oh, no. No, I mean, and we could have, no, I do this to people all the time. I let them go in front of me. So, you know, I'm better than you are. I said, no, no, not really. No, but you know, you go, and we, we had this, you know, finally, I'm like, you know what, she's scanning my items, too late for you. I tried. 
But if you were in a world where these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, where those things were the rule of the day, where everybody acted this way, it would be a pretty good place to hang out, wouldn't it? It would be a pretty nice place to live. Probably not. It would be the kind of place we'd want to be. And so Paul gives us this contrast. And if you look at this list, a lot of them are selfless at heart. What is love? Isn't love not like that feeling you feel when you feel a feeling you've never felt before love? Not like the butterflies in the stomach and, oh, she's so cute or whatever. But the, the, the actual reality verb to love someone is at heart a selfless thing. It's to put their interests above your own. It's to act as if they are more important than you, that you seek ways to love, to serve, to support them. And all of you husbands are going, that's right, honey, that's how I treat you, right? Or was that all the wives going? I don't know. That's what we think of. You know, if we were to tell a story, one of the people that's been here before, Bernadette Todd, tells her story. If you remember Bernadette, how many of you know who Bernadette is? Okay, a lot of you, she's... Uh, I think she's in Miami. I want to say out of uh, Christ Fellowship Church, might be her home church. But she goes all over the world and tells her story. I don't remember particularly the condition that, that she deals with, but she's uh, in a wheelchair and has been for years. And she met her husband when they were in college, Jeff. And their love story is remarkable because you might look at it and see that you just want to put it on a balancing scale. Jeff brings more to the equation than Bernadette does, that Bernadette and her needs would be taxing, you might say. But the beauty of the love story is that Jeff is willing and does the things that are needed for his wife to serve her, that his love for her isn't about what she can do for him, but in a way he can express his service to her. And those are the kinds of stories that you post on Facebook, because I see them. Joy, peace, patience, on down the list. We could look at every one of those, and we would find heart. Those are self-emptying behaviors. Those are things where if we were to live that way, we would truly flourish. We would truly be joyful. We would truly be happy. Given the two options, we'd all pick the second one. And so when, when I say to you, the best thing you can do for yourself is to do less for yourself, it's not because I have a project at the end of the service I'm going to ask you help for. I might. I do, but that's not the reason. The reason is because that's the reality that Jesus not only taught but modeled and the principles that we see throughout Scripture that doing for others is the best way to live your life. One of the, let's do it, I guess you could say it's a, what's the word I'm looking for? It's an example, but I don't know the word to put in front of it. How many of you know what the Dead Sea is? heard of the Dead Sea. This is like a raise your hand service. I've asked like 47 questions. Do I do that a lot? I'm kind of bugging myself by doing it today, so I'm sorry if it's bugging you. You all know what the Dead Sea is. It's in Israel, and it's called the Dead Sea because it's dead. Basically, has a high salinity rate. Not a lot of things can live in it. Also therapeutic. There are certain 
um, therapeutic things that happen in connection with the Dead Sea. Uh, one of the things that one of the reasons is dead is because as the water travels south into it through the Jordan River, it doesn't have an outlet. It just goes into and pours into the Dead Sea. It doesn't have a way to get out. And ironically enough, I guess ironically is the right word, the Dead Sea, which is constantly fed by the Jordan River, is also shrinking. You would think that if all it is is getting stuff poured into it, it would just get bigger and bigger and bigger. But it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller. In fact, 80, 90, 100 miles north is the Sea of Galilee, which is a beautiful sea there. It's a very popular tourist spot. Um, lots of hotels and resorts around it, as there are near the Dead Sea as well. But, but the, the entertainment value on the Sea of Galilee is a lot different than the Dead Sea. And one of the features of it is it has a river flowing into it and then water coming out of it. And that water eventually makes it to the Dead Sea, where it gets smaller and smaller. That doesn't make sense. How can a, a sea that is constantly having water poured into it be getting smaller, while another sea that has water coming in and going out seems to be flourishing. Well, the same way in your life that happens. If all you're doing is having and seeking and sucking up everything around you for you and you and you, it might seem like that's the best way to grow and be happy and and enjoy life, but in fact, you're going to be just like the Dead Sea. You're going to find that's not a good way. And In fact, you'll find yourself more and more isolated in many ways, getting smaller and smaller and smaller, shrinking rather than growing. One of the things that the uh, 23rd Psalm says is, My cup runneth over. The idea being, God has poured his blessing into me, and it just keeps flowing out. In fact, the the tradition with... um, guests in that day is that if you kept filling their cup, they got to keep staying. (laughs) One of the ways you could say dinner's over is to quit refilling their drink, which, you know, if you've ever been to a restaurant and the waitress is refilling your drink, maybe she's trying to tell you something, right? (laughs) Dinner's over. But nonetheless, that was sort of the way. And and so by saying that, the psalmist is, is indicating his, God's desire to constantly refill the cup of your life. He doesn't push you away. There's no end to his generosity and his hospitality. He is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. All of that culminates in this relationship we have from him where he is constantly wanting to pour into my life so that then I can pour into the lives of others. And so in that, we see symbolically again this idea that we were made not just to keep focused on ourselves. We were designed to keep pouring ourselves out. And the more we pour ourselves out, the more we'll find joy and happiness and contentment. We kind of mentioned toward the beginning, the best example of that is Jesus. And the best moment that we can see that has to be on the cross, right? In fact, we often talk about Jesus pouring out his life on the cross for us. And one of the ways we as a church commemorate and remember that gift and that sacrifice is through what we call the Lord's Supper. And we're going to take that today. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to take these two elements of the, the bread and the cup. And as we pass them and share them and eat and drink, it is the reminder to us of the 
not only the teaching of Jesus, because that's very, very important, but the teaching of Jesus combined with the example of Jesus. I'm going to go with Jesus probably lived the truthiest kind of life. He didn't always have the most. In fact, he said some things that says that tells us he lived maybe a pretty basic existence. But wherever Jesus went, it sure seemed like people wanted to be around him. And there was activity. And there was joy. Because he, as God's son, lived out what it meant to give and to serve. And so as we take the supper together, it's, it's a reminder to us. We say we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a reminder to us that, that the one we call Savior, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, demonstrated the kind of life that brings joy, the kind of life that brings happiness, the kind of life that brings contentment, a life given in service to others. And so as we do that today, I hope you'll meditate on those truths. I'm going to invite our deacons to come as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together.